Hello and welcome to my series of conversations with stalwarts of music. Today's episode is being partnered by Perpetual Buzz Experiences. It's an artist representation company with three basic but lofty goals. It's a launchpad for indie musicians, helping them leverage success by producing some of the most memorable experiences in terms of music. They also help generate funding for social causes and make sure people have a great time during the process. Do check them out on www.perpetualbuzz.com. We have yet another sponsor today which is Wire Up Music Store, one of the finest music retail stores with state of art equipment, your one-stop solution for the best musical gear. They have a wide range of gear ranging from guitars to ukulele, percussive instrument, instruments to classical instruments. Do check out their Instagram page on wireup.india. My guest today is from the world of death metal, progressive jazz rock music. He's an incredible bass guitar player and also alternates as a pianist and a vocalist. He graduated from the prestigious Berklee School of Music and later joined the band Z in 93. He's done some significant work with the guitar legend Steve Vai. He embodies some of the highest aspirations any musician would have joining forces with the Aristocrats in 2011. They've toured different parts of the world and their album You Know What debuted number 2 on the Billboard Jazz charts. The gentleman has been building bridges of sensibilities in the world of music. I'm delighted to welcome man of the year Brian Bello. Hi Brian, how are you? Hey, doing good. Hey, I didn't mean to have on a blurry background here. Let me see if I can change that. Sure, sure. Take your time. There we go. Oh yeah, there we go. That's wonderful. Where are you at? Which part of the world are you in right now? I'm uh, near Los Angeles. Oh, lovely. So what's going on? What are you what's what's part of the itinerary in the next couple of days? Well, I've got a couple things coming up locally in Los Angeles. You know, mm-hmm. I've got a uh, are, are we on there? Are we on right now? Yes, we 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 are on the live stream. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hi everybody. Uh You know, I'm I'm going out on tour starting on July 1 with the Aristocrats for a couple months and then there's going to be Joe Satriani right behind it. So once I leave in early July, uh I'm not going to be home until the end of November. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty intense. Good because, you know, we've been spending too much time at home lately. Uh so uh uh in well, while I'm still here in May, I'm going to be doing some stuff locally. There's a really cool thing that we have at the Whiskey uh which is a famous club on the Sunset Strip. Yeah. Called Ultimate Jam Night. We're going to have a big tribute to the big four and a place in Metallica and Megadeth songs which would be really fun. I love doing that. And uh uh I'm going to be doing a gig with Mike Keneally in mm-hmm. San Diego. Uh so the 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 Ultimate Jam Night thing is on Tuesday May 10 uh for all your friends in India who are going to come on down to Los Angeles on Tuesday. And uh and then the uh the gig with Mike Keneally is Friday May 13 in San Diego and then uh uh in the end of May I'm doing a clinic at a store called Pitbull Audio. uh on Friday May 27 and that's sponsored by my awesome awesome uh equipment manufacturing companies Michael Bases uh Galleon Kruger amplification and Dario strings lovely firstly Brian I'd like to congratulate you on the all new album that's set for launch on the 3rd of June with the Primus Chamber Orchestra the okay. entire album sounds so massive and you guys made my birthday On the 4th of May it was super special listening to your album uh since I had the privilege to 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 get a private stream of the same right so I I was just blown away by how beautiful it sounds you know with with an with the entire orchestra and uh, thank you so much for giving me that privilege Oh of course I mean you know it sounds great because first of all the orchestra the Primus Chamber Orchestra uh from Poland did such an amazing job uh recording these new arrangements that were uh written by Wojtek Lemanski their arranger uh he really found things in the composition you know all the compositions are essentially written uh, as intended for trio there's just only so much harmonic content you can put in there so we try and imply that a whole broad range of harmonic implications but we only execute as a trio and only Guthrie and I can deliver harmonic content as the guitarists and the bassists so uh like on a song like the ballad of Bonnie and Clyde which is the uh, first single that we've released from the orchestra album it's a very simple progression it's a, not a complicated harmonic content in that song but 
so much room for this dramatic orchestral flourish and, and new parts that have been constructed uh, by the arranger. And it just kind of transforms the whole thing. And then, of course, uh, it sounds great because Forrester Saville, the most amazing mix and mastering engineer from Australia, mm-hmm. uh, he did, uh, he's done so much stuff in his career. He, you know, most famously, he engineered the album Carnival Sound Awake. Wow. Okay. It's one of the greatest sounding rock albums really ever made, I think. Uh, and that's how I found him. And then I asked him to uh, record my solo, excuse me, to mix and master my solo album, Scenes from the Flood. Uh, and then he ended up doing some aristocrat stuff. And now he's in, he's, he's, he's in all, you know, so many people that I know are using him because he's just so amazing. And he made this record sound absolutely massive. He's just, uh, because we remixed uh, the uh, original album recordings from scratch stuff that was you know eight years ago and so it's been completely reinvented and, and and he deserves a large share of the credit for that wonderful my personal favorite song from the album would be all said and done from your earlier album you know what it sounds so much fuller now with the entire orchestra in place and it's it's like a it's like a narrative in itself right it sounds so much like an actual tale that you guys are trying to recite through the music could you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind this particular song and your approach when you had to rearrange it with the orchestra? Well, the, this is, I mean, you know, the, the Aristocrats, first of all, are a band where we all contribute compositions equally. So I want to make sure that we emphasize that because the first two songs we're talking about here are songs that I wrote. Uh, there's a lot of great songs, you know, that Guthrie and Marco wrote on the album as well. Uh, in this case, uh, All Said and Done was a song that came to me in a dream. <laughs> I, I woke up and the whole thing was there. And this was the dream. I don't, we haven't been playing this song live, so I don't tell this story. Uh, I, what the dream was, I was in a hotel and someone pulled the fire alarm. I wasn't sure whether there was a fire or not, but everybody is walking out of the building. And so it was this big kind of chaotic scene where everybody's, you know, massing on the street. And then when I went downstairs on the street, I heard this guy playing a seven string guitar, like doing this kind of repeating riff. Uh, which was a very kind of like a, a genty breakdown, you know, that clean Meshuggah animals as leaders type breakdown thing. And it was a really cool riff. And I was trying to find my way to him in the crowd because I wanted to see who was playing it. And by the time I got to where the person was, he was gone. Like suddenly he evaporated. Like, you know how dreams are like that. Yeah. So I was like, oh, and then a bus came rolling down the street, right through this huge crowd of people. And then stopped right in front of me and said, oh, you're supposed to be on here. And I'm like, okay, because you know how dreams are. You just, things just happen. So I get on the bus and I'm the only person on the bus. And the bus drives away from this big crowd. And there's this incredible stereo system uh, playing the chorus of this song. Uh, and the chorus is the chorus from All Said and Done. But there's, there, it's it, da, 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 all said and done. And it's this unbelievable, like majestic sounding thing. And I remember saying to myself, oh God, I love this Beatles song. This is my favorite Beatles song. And then I woke up. And so I was like, oh, that was weird. And so then I started singing the song and I was just like, what Beatles song is that? And I was like, wait a minute, that's not a Beatles song. I mean, it sounds like a Beatles song and it's supposed to sound like a Beatles song, but it's not actually a Beatles song. I know which one it sounds the most like, but it wasn't exactly like any of them. And so when you have that kind of twilight awakening, when you wake up and you realize that you dreamed a complete song, you have to run to your iPhone and just sing it as fast as you can into your voice memo. Because if you wait 10 minutes, you'll forget it all. I've had that happen. And, uh, and so there have been a couple songs that have come to me in dreams. Flatlands came to me in a dream. Smuggler's Corridor came to me in a dream. So like when I, another song came to me in a dream, I was like, I better remember this right now because some good stuff has happened here. So that's how that song happened. It all happens. It all, it all happens when you dream. I heard the whole harmonic progression and the melody and everything. It was all in the dream playing on the stereo on the bus that was rolling down the road with the great stereo system. And I was the only one on the bus. What's that all about? Incredible. <laughs> it's weird, right? For sure. But but at the end of the day, that song is super blissful. You know, I, 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 feel, I feel a certain way when I listen to it. Oh, cool. Well, and the orchestra, I mean, it was really easy to give the arranger kind of a tip on the orchestra on that one. It's like, okay, just pretend you're George Martin and what would you do with this song? 
uh, and uh, and the rest just kind of color. I mean, Wojtek did a great job on it, but I mean, it's a very obvious thing what that song is supposed to be, pastiche-wise, I suppose. I just can't wait the rest of the world to sort of, you know, listen to this album because it's just going to blow their minds out. And I hope so. <laughs> and I'm sure it's going gonna, it's gonna to bag a couple of Grammys for sure. Well, we hope so. You know, uh, it's yeah. funny that you mentioned that. Maybe someone who's watching this can clear this up for us. Uh, the I thought about trying to submit it for a Grammy consideration as well. Mm-hmm. But there's a requirement I learned very recently okay. that 75% of the material on the album has to be has to be newly recorded. All right. Uh, and so what does that mean? Does that mean 75% of the songs has to have newly recorded material? Because if that's true, then every song has newly recorded material. But if it's if 75% of the songs have to have the whole, whole thing is newly recorded, then within five years, then only the you know what songs qualify for that. And I don't know if we're going to get in. So I've actually reached out to the Grammy Academy to ask them this question. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mention it, but no one's gotten back to me yet. Well, let's hope, for the, <laughs> let's hope for the best fingers crossed. Yeah, me too. What is it that keeps you content now after several many decades of success and fulfillment in terms of music? Nothing. Just kidding. I mean, at some level, you have to, if you're just like, okay, I'm content, and that's it, then the fire to be additionally creative, you know, is not there. You know, there has to be something that you're still kind of reaching for, whatever it is. Uh, so that was what my little joke was about. But, uh, you know, the other thing is, uh, I think that obviously the whole COVID era experience has just reset a lot of people. I mean, how could it not? I know it reset me in a lot of ways. I mean, I was really, uh, almost a complete touring musician, uh, for the last six years, not a lot of gigs at home, just tour, 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 tour. So uh, I was maybe a little bit over toward and then of course I'm not anymore after two years of a break, but I remember feeling like, oh yeah, this is, you know, this is actually good. Not that COVID is good. COVID's terrible, but that we get a chance to reset and kind of find what's important in life and, uh, and, and, and go out and gather content. Because I mean, I, I feel like in order to be creative, you need input from the world. You can't just like create on demand from nothing. I mean, you can, uh, but the way it works best for me is that I have to kind of like experience life and then have it kind of wash over me and then absorb it and then be able to process it and then kind of turn it into music in some kind of statement uh, and have it mean something, especially with instrumental music, because I mean, like the music really has to convey a vibe because you're not doing it with vocals or lyrics. So, True. you know, I, I had several years actually uh, that were built up before I, I was able to produce Scenes from the Flood. I mean, my previous solo album before that was 12 years. Wow. So I, I felt like I had a lot to say. Uh, writing Aristocrats music is not quite like that because that's more, you know, it's not as heavy. I mean, the Aristocrats are supposed to be fun. So that's more about like, you know, finding a really peculiar life experience and then trying to translate it into music. But you still have to go out and experience life in order to do that. You know, so... And if you're constantly touring, yes, you can keep re- writing music about you know experiences that you have on tour, but that's kind of a very specific life experience. I think a lot of that has been done, you know, life on the road, you know. So uh, I'm looking for something else, and I was able to you know think about that kind of stuff after a nice break uh, while I'm writing new material for a future Aristocrats album, which I've been working on. Oh, lovely! When is that likely to be up? I have no idea. We have not figured that out yet. We're just trying to get the orchestra album out and get back on tour. And, uh, and you know, now that we can all travel and schedule things, you know, work it out. Just can't wait to hear that too. Me neither. <laughs> what do you generally look for in uh, music collaborations? And what, what are some of the qualities that different musicians see in you when they try to collaborate? Well, uh, if it's just a matter of, of me playing bass for somebody uh, as opposed to writing, because I've actually never written with anybody. I've never written as a collaboration. That's mm-hmm. something I kind of just only do on my own for whatever reason. Maybe that'll change in the future, but that's the way it's been. So, but if it's just about playing, then, you know, I feel like 
hopefully I've done enough stuff so that people kind of know what it is that I do and what it is that I sound like and what it is that I bring to a song. I mean, it's kind of weird to kind of explain your own thing because then you're like a talking press kit. But uh, I think that for in the genre that I've been in, you know, with the aristocrats and Joe Satriani and Steve Vai and Mike Keneally and, and, and maybe even Death Clock, although that's a bit of a, a outlier. Uh, you know, I just always want to sound good. I always want the bass to sound really good because it's one thing to play the notes, but it's another thing to make the notes sound really big and warm and clear, fat, distorted, whatever you're going for. Just sound with intention. Uh, and uh, always try and compliment the song. You know, give it a little bit of propulsion. You know, from one section to the next. Uh, and uh, just always kind of keep the overall music in mind whenever I'm bringing something to the table. So hopefully, you know, that's what happens. Like with the the, the recent Joe Satriani album, uh, The Elephants from Mars, The Elephants mm-hmm. of Mars, excuse me. The Elephants of Mars, yeah. Uh, you know, we all record, that was recorded during lockdown and we all did it from home. Uh, Joe and I had recorded an album before, sort of Shockwave Supernova, but that was in person. And in person, you know, you get this thing where it's like, okay, we're all together, we're in a studio, time is money, you know, we got to get it together as a group. Mm-hmm. And that definitely produces a certain kind of combined collaborative energy. But, you know, being able to work on it at home really allows, I think, each individual artist to kind of go deep into their, you know, I don't want to say bag of tricks, but into their own personal sonic repertoire to be able to generate and create the thing that's really best for the song through trial and error, which you might not have the opportunity to do that if you're in a live session with a band. It's kind of like, I think this is going to work. Let's do it. Okay, we got it. Next song. You know, at home, when you have time to do it by yourself, you can take a little bit more time than that. And uh, it's situations like that because there's so much remote recording that's going on these days. Uh, Being home and working on the lockdown during the lockdown has really kind of helped me refine the whole what it is that I bring to a recording thing. But either way, you know, whether it's live or recording, I'm always like listening to the other guys, always trying to figure out like what's best for the song, what's best for the band, what's best for the arrangement. What's going to make it so that we're all having a cool experience together? Fair enough. You're known to play the upright bass as well with an equal flair as much as you play the electric bass. I'd like to understand the role of this instrument in modern day music. Well, I'm not sure I have much to say about playing upright bass. I certainly don't do much of it. Uh, I have a, a kid electric upright, which is one of those, like, it's just a neck. And pick up and it's on a stand it's great i used it on the new satriani album and mm-hmm. i might even bring it out on the stage live if we do the song that i played it on but i mean i haven't played upright for real since i was a teenager you know even like i stopped when i was 13 school orchestra so god bless the people that are doing it for real you know really doubling you know like uh like like christian mcbride who's mm-hmm. really really john patitucci those guys i mean that's, that's amazing but i don't do that so but do you know. think there's scope for that instrument in terms of uh, in modern day music? Uh, I mean, sure. But I mean, I think in the end, it, it kind of turns into like a, in modern music, the use of upright bass kind of, I, I mean, you end up kind of like falling into that postmodern jukebox world, right? right. Where you're, you know, re- finding ways to use vintage instruments to translate modern music and, and then you know, make it sound like a pastiche of a different genre while taking the chords of the modern song that you're trying to interpret. I mean, uh, I I don't know too many. I mean, other than that, I mean, you remember the whole rockabilly and maybe, you know, ska. I mean, like there was a little bit of a revival 20 years ago, like Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and that whole thing where there was like a modern electric upright. But even that was a throwback to music of a different era, I think. So in the end, I think sounds, you know, they imply certain time frames. Uh, you know, a, a really, really uh, classic blues guitar. You know, of course, there's people doing it now, but you know, you're really eminent. You're really, uh, really referencing something from the '60s and the '70s. In the end of the day, true. One of the skepticisms that I've noticed uh, among people is the fact that they they always have something to say about other people who preach and teach things. What degree do you feel that you practice what you preach as a musical mentor or an educator? 
eh, you know, I, I try not to get too deep into these, you know, I think this about that kind of conversations. I, I, I think that they end up just generating a lot of heat online and then, you know, people commenting back and forth and God knows we have enough of that. <laughs> so I, I would just say, you know, to each his own, you know, there's certain people who, you know, are, are really, really into, you know, certain educational methods, certain people are into informal educational methods, certain people do everything by ear. You know, I went to Berkeley College of Music, you know, I, I learned a lot there, uh, but I'm certainly not married to charts or theory or anything. And, and I'm not a, the most disciplined practicer or theory educator in the world. And I, I don't know every single mode of a mode or a scale of a scale or anything like that. I just play the music I love. And play the music that I wanted that, that I I'm gravitate towards. And I think we all do that. That's why we all got into music in the first place. So if you just gravitate towards what motivates you and, and makes you passionate about music, I think it's kind of hard to go wrong if you go about it that way. Lovely. Quite a quite a lovely take uh, to it. If we had to talk a little bit about the uh, futurology, coming down to your use of uh, skills as uh, an instrumentalist. How do you project this in your compositions and reach out into the future? Can you give us an example? Uh, I'm not sure I can. <laughs> How do you reach out into the future? I mean, like, you know, the, the one thing we know about the future is we don't really know what's going to happen. You know, we, we, we think we do, but we don't. Uh, and so really, uh, the most important thing is concentrating on where you are in the present, uh, because the present is what creates the future. So I think it's important to be, you know, to be really in touch with the sounds and the songs that are inspiring you kind of like right now. And uh, inevitably, some of it references the past. I mean, you, you, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, all of us. You know, there, there's very, you know, it's all been done before is one of the things they say. But, you know, it's the combination of things that have already been done that can be repackaged into something new or can be inspired that can become something new. And you just never know who's going to come up with it. And you never know whether that person is going to be you. Uh, I think the less you think about that sort of thing, the better. And, um, it, and I, I felt like, I mean, you know, if you're thinking about what I'm going to create that's going to go into the future, how are you ever going to access a song that you have in a dream? I mean, talk about something that's present, right? So, you know, and then when you hear things like that, it's like, oh, I remember that sound from the dream. I'm just going to try and go for this. Or if you're having a thought about a song and then, you know, the most important thing is just don't think about it too much. Just get down and start demoing it. Start making the demo. And next thing you know, you've got something there that wasn't there before. And that at some point in the future, hopefully some other people will hear. So there you've created the future. Would you say that the process of learning music involving a master, it definitely does involve transmission that involves effort. And I think something that's much more complex than just training yourself and the effort that you put in. It's an interweaving of many complex ideas and processes around it. And, and I feel it's progressively being lost. What is your take on that? I, you know, uh, I think in some ways there's more mastery around musicianship than there ever has been. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of that is because there's so much video. You know, we're growing up and, and when I was growing up, uh, you know, back in the 1400s, uh, you know, we, we had maybe, maybe a VHS, you know, video cassette of somebody doing a one hour kind of video clinic uh, and maybe a live, you know, movie or something. And that was it, unless you saw the show. The rest you had to figure out on your own. Now, you, know, you can see anytime, 24 hours a day, all these amazing musicians pulling off all sorts of incredible stuff and you can see and freeze every single moment of their fingers. You can see exactly how they position themselves in the neck. And sometimes that's just the trick to pulling something off is just seeing the hand alignment. Sometimes you can figure it out on your own and you realize, oh, okay, this has to be the way that the person did it because there's no other way to do it. But that doesn't come naturally to everybody. So, I mean, I think that there is a hive mind because of all of the online content now that just didn't exist before the age of the internet. And that speeds along the process for a lot of people and, and maybe allows people to kind of like use the cheat code and, 
and and skip some parts of the uh, of a process that would have been longer 20 30 years ago maybe that's good maybe that's bad but either way it's not really my position to put like a value judgment on it you know it, it, what's the point of that anyway it what's happening is what's happening you know you got to play the game as it exists not as you may wish or want it to be You've been training several students as a music educator, uh, and in terms of uh, you know uh, your students, every student is distinct, you know, in the sense, uh, in terms of their sensibilities, in terms of how they grasp things, in in terms of the effort that they put in, right? So, in what ways are your students different from what you were as a student when you were learning music? Well, everybody. is different and everybody's the same. You know, we all want to be able to play the music we want to play. Some of it we know how to play, some of it we don't know how to play. And then we've got to find a way to get from here to there. How to get from okay, I want to become better on my instrument so that I can do X. Generally, I I I don't think I've ever found a student who just wants to get better on their instrument just because they want to get better on their instrument. Just they want to get better on their instrument and achieve, you know, more musical expertise so that they can play music so that they could you know do a recording or play with a band usually play with a band uh so in that way everybody's really after the same thing you know personalities are all different every every human being is unique and that uniqueness translates into the way they play the instrument the way they sound the way they vibe and everything but you know i i think i i think it's easy to overthink all of this You know, we we just want to play music. I think the real the real trick is to turn off all of the noise around, you know, paralysis by analysis and just sit down with your instrument, and just play. You know, the music and the instrument will will tell you what to do to a large degree. And then if you're in private instruction with someone who's had a little bit more experience than you, they can say, "Oh, okay, well, you know, you know, maybe play it a little softer here, maybe position your hand like that. You know, have you considered, you know, this harmonic role in this scale? That stuff Sure. But in the end, we're all after the same thing and I think as educators our job is just to kind of like remove the obstacles from people who are wanting to get better and then kind of just point them in the right direction and then just kind of set them free. We have a couple of interesting questions on our feed right now. We have a lot of people from India who have some interesting questions. Okay. We have Yashik who says, "Could you walk us through the creative process of writing a death metal track in a band like Deathlock?" Okay. Well, first of all, I don't write for Deathlock. So, uh, it's not really my place to to answer that, but I would tell you that if I'm writing a track, period, mm-hmm. and, and it's a metal tune, I mean, you know, with metal the first thing you got to think of is just what's the riff. You know, it just all starts there. You know, the 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 riff is the is the is the keystone for the whole song. Uh you decide whether or not you want it to be in standard tuning or a lower tuning, if it's going to be fast or slow, if it's going to, you know, what kind of subdivisions of the beat. And then the drums will follow that and so will the bass. Uh you know, I I'm a big metal fan from going all the way back 30, 40 years and I, you know, I love Metallica and Megadeth and the Big Four and all that. So, you know, Death Clock and and uh kind of modern metal, which Death Clock is largely influenced by Gojira and Behemoth. uh and some other swedish uh, you know uh, melodic death metal mm-hmm. but uh it, that stuff is all influenced by classical music like traditional theory so uh it, it's writing metal is just about writing a cool riff you know whether it's going to be and and you can even come up with a rhythm first like i'm just thinking making this up out of thin air or if it's so you can come up with the rhythm first or you could say it's going to be in C. You know, you could say, you know, like this is C, I think that's C. Decide what kind of tonal world you want it to be in, whether you want it to be melodic minor or you want it to be harmonic minor or it's probably minor. <laughs> anyway, uh again, I I think that it's easy to overthink that too. You know, you know what metal you like. You've been listening to it your whole life. So just sit down with your guitar and just start messing around and just start recording stuff and then see what see what comes out. 
what is a destination for a musician of your caliber at this point in your life to keep on interpreting what you do as well with the with a variety of stuff and the enthusiasm that you that you've displayed in terms of your music i'm curious to know from you if there are any new territories that you are interested in exploring in terms of music any new what any new territory that you want to uh, any 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 kind of new horizon that you want to sort of ah figure well, out well you know i uh, it's funny i mean i think because it, the really strange thing about my career is that i did not set out to be in this particular genre that i landed in i thought that i was going to be doing like kind of like more traditional kind of funk and r&b you know just groove stuff that's really where i was headed but i always had a, also a big uh, i also love metal and i love progressive music and that was always there too so maybe the universe heard that in my brain and said okay what you really want is this and the next thing i know i'm playing with Dweezil Zappa and Steve Vai and you know uh recording for James Labrie and then i run into Guthrie and then Joe Satriani and it's like it's a lot it's a lot of notes and and it's a lot of kind of intense music so what i find myself wanting to do and i think i explored some of this on on my last solo album scenes from the flood which is this big double progressive concept album is kind of taking a lot of the technic not all of it but taking a lot of the technicality out of it and just creating soundscapes and creating vibes and simple melodies i mean like even when i'm writing for the aristocrats i think i'm really always trying to think of a melody you should be able to take away a simple melody from a song i really believe that unless you're just writing a pure soundscape like Apex Twin or maybe some 9-inch nails like ghosts type stuff. Uh you know, you really want a song needs a melody. I believe that. Uh like one of the things that Joe Satriani always says is uh if I can't play the melody to a song on a piano, then it's not really a melody. And I think that there's a lot of like really deep truth in that. You know, it's just what are the notes? Where do they go? guitar you can bend vocals you can you know kind of slide and sing all over the place but the piano doesn't lie you got to play a note right. so uh you know i'm that's where i'm focused on is trying to find ways to communicate new melodies i mean like you think that all the good melodies have been taken but people keep writing songs right uh is is to come up with melodies and then kind of come up with an interesting soundscape and deliver an emotional message and i i i i don't think that you need to kind of like keep reinventing where your horizon point is uh in order to keep working on achieving that goal song by song what are you listening to right now in terms of music what what are some of the interesting uh, artists that you resonate to at this point well i'm you know it's funny uh i'm in one of those periods here where i'm learning a lot of music uh so Lovely. you know i have uh, I, some musicians are like this and some aren't i find that i can't have too much music going on or else i'm not fresh for what i'm working on so i need to kind of take a break from listening to music you know when i get really intense into or and i'm in a writing period right now so i'm trying to find time to kind of like find those magic few hours in the day where i can just open up the demo and kind of execute these concepts that i already hear in my head because i've got this like I, i've got two of the three songs that i want to contribute to the next aristocrats album already demoed this third one's really complicated so i spent a lot of time trying to sort out in my head what is going to go where how am i going to program the drums how my god am i going to execute this thing that i'm hearing on guitar in a demo because i'm not a good guitarist and i'm writing to try to make this demo for Guthrie and he's got to be able to be like oh okay you mean this and i'm like yeah i mean that so that takes up a lot of space but you know i'll tell you one artist and band that i've been listening to a lot lately mm -hmm. uh is Rabia Masad all right a guitarist from and and specifically the album uh uh by his band Tosco which i think just dissolved uh an album called Fire by the Silos which i just think it's just an amazing sounding record it's just so huge you know it just sounds so good uh and uh, so that's cool uh i think the new Mashuga is amazing mm -hmm. you know the, just the first track alone it's such a such a simple conceit the way that they're turning around uh one very simple rhythmic pattern but just doing it incessantly and not really revealing where the where the foundation of the groove is until the very end of the song i thought that was pretty cool uh but i mean like you know i i i kind of go through these little passing things where i'll listen to some like some pop and then like sometimes i'll hear like someone 
playing a jazz cut. And I, I kind of digest things now in the modern way, which is a little clip here, a little clip there. And uh, I get exposed to all sorts of stuff in that way. I'll be sure to check them out. Yeah. Uh, you did mention about the evolution process, right? So how do you sort of respond to the changing scenario, the changing nature, the structure, the form and approaches to music? Right? Do you in some way perhaps despair its increasing commercialization? Currently, it's perhaps diminishing integrity in a very traditional sense. What, what, is, your, what is your thought process towards something like that? Well, I mean, that's not a new issue. The, uh, is music too commercialized? I mean, it's just been around since mm -hmm. the dawn of time, mm -hmm. right? I mean, uh, the, the, the classical composers who were in, you know, uh, basically house composers for a kingdom, you know, were on a salary, you know, probably, I would imagine, you know, would catch shit from other composers who, you know, weren't on a payroll and saying, oh, you've sold out. You know, I mean, it's like the the oldest single insult there is, as if like selling a lot of music is, is a terrible thing. I mean, like, of course, there's just commercialized pop music out there and yeah, everybody can judge. But uh, one of the things that Frank Zappa used to say, which I found that was really wise, is that he said, there's no accounting for taste. Some people like that stuff. More people like like simple music than like the music that I uh, have been artists that I've been playing with. Or else, you know, we'd be the pop stars and they'd be the weirdos. So, you know, there's no point in really despairing over that. Uh, there's advantages and disadvantages to both things. I mean, like, I think that being in the genre that we're in allows us as musicians to develop personal brands. Uh, you know, me as Brian Beller, Guthrie as Guthrie Govan, Marco as Marco Miniman, Steve I as Steve I, Joe Satriani as Joe Satriani, in ways that pop artists and certainly musicians who back up pop artists uh don't get to develop you know it it's like they have great careers a lot of them doing really well god bless uh but we don't know who the guitarist for pink is uh he or she is probably great and doing well but we it's not like we automatically know who that is when we associate with the artist pink whereas in our genre we want to know generally you know, progressive instrumental, who's playing what, you know, who's the guitarist, who's the keyboardist, who's the drummer, who's the bassist. And I think that's a cool thing. So I find that, you know, it's, it's probably more productive to focus on the things that are good about what we're doing, uh, rather than the things that, you know, we don't get because we're not playing more commercial music, whatever that is. That being said, are there certain principles that you incorporate in terms of your artistry? You know, I don't know if I could list them as principles. I just know what I like to hear. I think that's as long as you follow the, you know, play what you love, create what you love, uh, you know, that's the, that's the highest principle you could shoot for. You know, why, why would you do something that's not in sync with the things that you like to do? I mean, that's a recipe for suffering right there. So... I, I, you know, you just try and avoid that. The good news is that your mind uh, wants to avoid that anyway. Right. Do you have a spiritual process? Uh, generally, do you have, do you practice techniques of spirituality, which sort of adds, uh, adds to the musicality in some way? You know, uh, I, I, I'm not sure that that's a productive conversation. Uh, I have, I could go on for an hour about my thoughts of, you know, the spirituality, but, uh, you know, it, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really get there in terms of like my music is touching a spiritual place other than the presence and the being in the state where you're just associating with the music and your mind is clear of everything else. Uh, I think that is a spiritual state that, uh, is worthy of achieving. And, uh, you know, I think when you're playing live and everything is going right, uh, and the sound's really good and the band is communicating with each other and the song is being communicated effectively and the music and the, is reaching the audience and the audience is responding and giving you the energy back and it's all one big thing and you're right there in the, in the moment of it and you're not thinking about anything else. You know, that's, that's spiritual. Uh, 
But in terms of like, you know, daily spiritual practice or meditation, I've meditated in the past. There have been times where I have and times where I haven't. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes along with that. But I'm not sure any of it is relevant here. All right. Uh, a lot of fans want to know some interesting anecdotes, uh, probably the, the best of your touring experiences uh, with the aristocrats, like some interesting memory or some story that you'd like to share with the audiences out here. Well, one of the most exciting things we ever did with the aristocrats was come to India in, uh, in 2016. It was the first time I'd ever been. Then, uh, I've only been back once, and that was with Joe Satriani uh, in 2018 for a festival in Pune. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we came with the aristocrats, we did five shows. We did uh, Kolkata and Mumbai and Delhi and Bangalore. I think there were two shows in Bangalore, if I remember correctly, or maybe there were two shows in Delhi. Something happened. You know, I remember we were there and we were told that we couldn't go to Bangalore on the day that we thought we were going to go because there were having, there were water riots. Okay. That's I was, we were like, wow. Yeah, I know. So it was, a, there was a, there was, there was civil unrest, so we couldn't go there. So we ended up staying in Delhi an extra day. And the promoters there said, oh, well, we can put together a show on, the, on your extra day. And we're like, but that's tomorrow. <laughs> and they were like, that's fine. We can make a show happen in one day. And we all looked at each other like, well, there's something that you can do in India that you can't do anywhere else in the world. <laughs> I mean, if you tried that anywhere in Europe, they'd, they'd, they'd laugh at you. You know, in Japan, they'd probably deport you. Uh, but in India, it was possible. And sure enough, 24 hours later, we were playing a show for like three or 400 people. So, I mean, I think the, the spontaneity of the Indian culture is one of the things that was really amazing for us when we were there. And, and then that was even able and capable of happening. Uh, the other show that we did in Delhi was at the Hard Rock Cafe. And I'll remember that was because... Uh, there were probably more people in that room than should have been in that room. It was just so packed and it was so loud. The crowd was so loud. It was one of the most invigorating, but also like just almost frightening things I'd ever heard. I've never heard a crowd that loud before. Part of it is because the, 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 the room was very wide and shallow. It's one of the things that you learn when you're, when you're a performing musician, if the room is skinny and deep going away from you when you're playing, then you can't hear the cheers in the back because the voices just can't travel that far. But if it's a sh if it's a shallow back wall and really wide across, then all of that all those people are right there, and if they all shout at once, it just it'll take your head off. And I think that there were seven hundred people in that room, and I couldn't believe how loud it was. Really amazing. Wonderful. Uh, we also have some other interesting questions on our feed. Uh, let me just scroll through the, through the feed quickly for you. Yeah, so in terms of uh, your whole uh, repertoire, uh, do, you, do you sort of uh, carry forward the set of instructions in a, in a very methodical way or you just improvise when you're on stage because you know you do several several concerts several back-to-back -back concerts and every night it's going to it's possibly going to be the, the same kind of set list right be it with aristocrats or any other artist for that matters how do you how do you do it like do you do you do it like methodically or do you just play by the feel of it i think that those two things are not in conflict uh you know playing methodically and playing with the feel of it can be the same thing you know that you play the same thing in two different rooms and you're going to have two different experiences because it's going to sound different it's going to feel different you're going to feel different depending on how your day was the audience is going to be different it's all different people the room the shape of the room the size of the room everything sounds different uh so we know you know as musicians listen there's certain things that work about a song and you've got to play the song so there's some things that you're just going to play uh you know, a lot of it. Then there's moments in the show where, you know, you improvise and it's designed to be an improvisational bit. And then you explore the possibilities in that room, in that space at that time. Uh, 
And the aristocrats, you know, we're, we're always kind of trying to push the boundaries of, of the song a little bit. And so, you know, one of us will maybe try a little thing at a certain part of the song that we haven't done before. And maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. Uh, if it really works, maybe we'll try it again the next night to see if it works again. And then maybe it'll become a bit, uh, but not every time. So uh, I think that, you know, when you're on tour, the most important thing is to deliver a show that works. You know, we're not, we're not a jazz band where it's like, or, and none of the acts I'm doing are jazz, where you, you play the head, the melody, and then you improvise for 15 minutes, and then you come back and play the head again. I mean, that'll be a different experience every night to a certain extent. But that's not what we're doing. We're, we're, we're a rock band. I'm play, playing rock bands. They have some jazz elements, some improvisational elements. But we're there to deliver a show that people are going to love, that works. And part of us being professionals is being up there and recognizing when something is working and also when something is not working. Because not everything that you think is going to work is going to work. Audiences will tell you whether or not something is working by their response or, or whether it's not. And then I think it's up to us as musicians, especially if it's our own act, like the aristocrats, to, to, to refine the, the show as we go through the tour. That's one of the great things about tours is that you get the opportunity to refine the show and the set list as you go until maybe 10, 20 shows in, you've got this really, really cooking set that you know that every part of it works. And then once you've got that, then you can start to have a little more fun with kind of improv moments in the set. But really, I think in the first 10 shows of any tour, you're, you're just trying to make sure that your show really kind of delivers for the audience. Nice. Now I'm going to move to a slightly interesting segment of our interview where I'll be asking you very concise questions and you're going to be very okay. spontaneous with your answers. All right. Okay. The first question for you. Uh, what is your idea of an all-star death metal band? Who would be in it, dead or alive? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't want to limit it to just one musician on each. I mean, I think, you know, either Gene Hoagland or Dave Lombardo on drums, you know, is going to be great. Uh, you know, uh, of course, I want to be the bass player, but, you know, Steve DiGiorgio is great. Alex Webster, you know, those guys are great. Uh, God, there's so many great guitarists. I don't even know where to start. You know, uh, you know, it'd be great to have Devin Townsend in the band. Uh, but also, I mean, you know, the you know Frederick from Mashuga, Tosin from Animals as leaders. I mean, God, there's just so many people. I don't want to get into like you know, it's it's these four guys. There's just so much. There's so much great stuff out there. Good enough. What is that one song that always makes you cry? Uh, you know, I, I have a couple that are, that are, that are really kind of dear to me. I, I, you know, there was a point there where every single time I listened to Jeff Buckley's last goodbye, I would get close to tears. That's probably the closest thing that I have to something like that. Wonderful. On the contrary, what is your favorite guilty pleasure song? What's a guilty pleasure when it comes to music? I mean, like, you know, something you like and other people don't. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to interpret that, you know, because it makes it sound like it's like there's something wrong with you listening to it, which I just, I just don't accept the premise of that. Okay. What is your favorite cuisine? Oh, uh, you know, well, I grew up in the New York area. Uh, so, you know, New York style, which is really Neapolitan style, if you go back to Italy, uh, Italian food. Uh, is, is is always great for me. Also, uh, New York style Szechuan Chinese food. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, that stuff's really heavy. I you know I, I can't eat stuff like that anymore. I have, it takes me a day to recover from it now. It's one of the things about not being twenty years old anymore. Uh, but you know, also just a really nice blackened salmon. I could eat that all day long. Did you like Indian food? Uh, not like it's not my favorite kind of food and it's not because uh you know i i think it's because it's a little hard on me honestly <laughs> but also i'm not like big on like super spicy food either and i think that the spice the and the heat is like a big part of like what makes it go you know like all the vindaloos and stuff like that and and you know talk to guthrie about indian food man he loves indian food he'll eat that all day long uh and maybe it's because i didn't grow up with it 
you know, I grew up with the, you know, you, you kind of get these things that are deep coded into your brain. Like I, I grew up with the Italian and the Chinese food around New York. My parents never took me out for Indian food. So I didn't even taste Indian food for the first time until I think I was like maybe 25 years old. Okay. Maybe the next time you come down to India, you should hang out with me. I will, I will take you to different parts of India and we will try different uh, styles, different cuisines in India. That'll be fun. I have one last question for you. And this is, this is a common question in all my interviews down okay. in the distant horizon. What would you want to be remembered as? You know, that's not for me to decide. I mean, in the end, your perceptions of you and other people's perceptions of you are just never going to be the same. You know, again, I think this is a common refrain, you know, looking too far off into the future, uh, I think is a recipe for, you know, not really kind of being where you are. So I think if I just keep doing what I'm doing, uh, then whatever I'll be remembered for will hopefully be the best parts of what I've done. And so all there is for me to do is just to keep doing what I'm doing. Please do that. As we continue to celebrate a dozen marvelous musical pieces and the showmanship that you've displayed in terms of your abilities, uh, in terms of instruments, in terms of your vocal abilities, it sort of plays a very rich and intense life that all of us sort of await to hear. So please keep doing that. And, and we are here to support your music. Thank you very, very much. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. This interview is also going to be part of my all-new audio podcast, which is going to be called Stalwarts of Music with Aditya Veera. And it's additionally being aired on Big FM, Shillong, and Azol, two incredible uh, radio stations that cater to music. Uh, so before we conclude, uh, I would like you to give a concluding note. It would be great if it were to be a musical note. You want me to sing? <laughs> oh, whatever suits you. <laughs> you know, uh, listen, I think the most important thing uh, that anybody can take away from any of these interviews uh, mm-hmm. that uh, you got to do your own thing. You know, uh, in the end, if you're doing something that rings true to you and rings true to your own musical integrity, then you're going to be happy. And anytime you're doing something that's counter to that, you're going to know if you just listen to the inside of your, of your body and your music and your mind and your soul. Uh, and I will summon that spirit by saying that I think that I would prefer to end this interview by talking rather than singing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been a great blessing, honor and a privilege to have you as part of my uh, interview series. Uh, it's been an absolute privilege. And thank you so much for, for everything and all your time. Please do stay in touch. I'd love to host you when you're in India. Thank you very much. I look forward to getting back there hopefully soon. All right then. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.